Let's pray. Father, God, I pray in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus that, Lord, you will mercifully grab hold of our hearts and wrap them, Father, in your strong arms of love and open our eyes to the wonder of your glory. God, may we be captivated by you more than anything else in all this world. May we be more captivated by you than we are by the name America. For America is nothing compared to you. You are God. And you are king. You are creator. And it is to you, O oh Lord, that my allegiance stands. And I praise your name. Thank you, Father, for the grace that you have poured out upon sinful people to save us, to change us, to call us, and to make us into an eternal nation, the body of Christ. Lord, it is in Jesus' most precious, holy, 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 holy name that I pray. Amen and amen. Well, take your Bibles and turn this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to camp out in verse number 8 this morning. Verse number 8, Matthew chapter 5. Um, we are continuing to paint the picture of the heart of the real Christian, of what the heart of the, the true convert looks like. And some of you might say to yourself, Pastor, you're always talking about true conversion and true salvation versus false conversion and false salvation. It seems like you're always working that in somehow. You're right. I am. I always have. And Jesus always did. Do you understand that? As a matter of fact, as we are entering into the Sermon on the Mount, uh, here we're dealing with Jesus is introducing this sermon with this issue of what they and they alone who are part of the kingdom of God look like. Do you realize that he ends the Sermon on the Mount talking about many are those who cry, Lord, Lord, but they won't enter the kingdom? Do you realize that he talks about a broad road and a narrow road and fewer they that find life and travel on the narrow road? And that is not a comparison to Christianity. Christianity and world religions, we know they're on the broad road. But he's saying those of you who fill the temples and the church houses and those kinds of places, be careful because many in the doorway of the church are damned. Mm. So that's why I do that. I'm not saying everybody, not, I don't know who is. I just know that it is important that we have repented and believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the call of the gospel. That is the call of the gospel, that we be taken captive by that. And so that's why Jesus does this so often. 
That's why Jesus will talk about the wheat and the tare and he'll give the parable of the four soils or he'll talk about the sheep and the goats. and He, he does it quite often. I just wish I could do it as well as Jesus does. But that's what we're doing here in the, the Beatitudes is we're looking at a picture of what the true convert's heart looks like. And we've been seeing that the real Christian is a person that's poor in spirit. That is, that's a person who comes to the end of themselves spiritually and realizes, whoa, I have nothing to offer God. <laughs> we see that the real Christian person is a person that mourns over that sinfulness. that They realize they have nothing to offer God but sin. And they mourn over that. We realize that the real Christian person is a person who's meek because they are humble before God. When they realize this, we have seen that the real Christian person is a person who hungers and thirsts after Christ, the righteous one, and His righteousness being lived out in our lives. And we've seen that the real Christian is merciful because we have obtained such a great mercy, how can we not extend mercy to those who have wronged us as well? Not that we model all of these things perfectly, but that we are leaning into them and we're growing to being like these things more and more in our daily life. Now, today, we come to verse 8. Now, oh, it's heavy. Oh, I pray we feel the weight of this. Because in verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed. Happy, blessed are the pure in heart, for they, emphasis in the Greek now is, they alone, for they will see God. Do you want to see God? Do you want to see God? Well, Jesus says you're going to be happy and get to see God, condition if you're pure in heart. Now, I have to be honest with you, that particular beatitude to me, is one of the most intimidating of them all. It really is. Because I realize, if, I, if you know your own heart, you understand. Because I realize my heart doesn't seem too pure sometimes. My heart seems to be stained with, with sin at times. It, it, it seems to be touched with corruption at times. Yet Jesus is saying that blessed are the pure in heart for they and they alone will see God oh my what does this mean you know Jesus is echoing an Old Testament passage actually when he says this um, of course it doesn't matter Jesus is God and God breathed the Old Testament just like he's breathing the New Testament <laughs> but it actually the, the essence of the eighth Verse 8 of Matthew chapter 5 comes from Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4. See if you remember these, these verses. Um, in verse 3, the Spirit asked this question. In, in of course, David wrote this psalm. David says, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand on His holy place? And in verse 4, the Spirit answers this. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who will ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who will stand in His presence? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. In other words, you don't have clean hands. You, you, you don't have a pure heart. You won't ascend to the hill of the Lord. You will not stand in His presence. 
You see why I say this is a very intimidating verse when you look at it? That's kind of shocking when you look at it. Um, so, Jesus says, happy, blessed are those are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And you want to see God? I want to see God. So, what, what is he talking about? So, let, let's ask some questions of the text. I'll ask three, four, four, a four. Okay, I thought about five, but we won't. We don't have time for that this morning. Fifth one could be a sermon within itself. And somebody said, praise God, he's getting smarter. <laughs> All right. The first thing that I would ask when I, when I look at this, because I go to a text and I, I really I, I, I unfold sermons the way I would study any passage of Scripture, is I begin to interrogate it. And I would ask simply, what, his, what does it mean to be pure? And by the way, as I answer some of these questions, at least the first two questions, it's actually going to make the weight of this seem even heavier. As we realize what he's talking about, as far as the mechanics are concerned. Now, what does it mean to be pure? The word that is used here in the original, in the Greek, is kathros. That word is a comprehensive term. It, it brings, it nuances together about three different things. Um, and on one hand, it, it means to be clean. It means to be spotless. It means to be without blemish. Right now you begin to think, well, I only know of one who is clean and without blemish. Right? <laughs> Another way that this word, a second way in which it, 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 second thing it implies, it implies innocence. Without guile, no deceit. It's reminiscent of what David said in Psalm 32, in verse, verse 2, when he says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. They're, they're sincere. That it means also a singleness of devotion. It means a singleness of devotion. The, the, the pure heart is not a divided heart. Which reminds me of another psalm, Psalm 86, verse number 11, in which the writer cries out, Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. It's the, and, and that is, in essence, crying out for a pure heart. It's, it's a heart also that is wholly, totally, completely devoted to something. And in this case, the Lord. This is kind of heavy, isn't it? This is kind of heavy to think about these things. So that's what the word kathros means, pure within itself. Now, what about, what is this thing that is to be pure? What is the object of this kathros? What is the object of this purity? Well, Jesus did not say, blessed 
are the pure in mind. Happy are they, for there they shall see God. He didn't say that. He could have. And that may be true. But that's not what he's saying right here. That's not his focus. He didn't say, blessed or happy are the pure of tongue, for they shall see God. Though that may be true. He didn't say that. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, when Jesus speaks of the heart, Jesus is, is using a word that is specific to something. Because when we use the word heart, we could be talking about any number of things. With the heart, we could be talking about that cardiac muscle within our chest wall that beats and pumps blood throughout our bodies. Sometimes we talk about the heart, we're talking about that. Or when we use the term heart, we can be just talking about emotions. Angie, I broke Angie's heart. Okay? You, you know, we use it that way. But when Jesus uses the word heart, Jesus uses a specific word. In the Greek, it's kardie. Now, that may sound familiar to you because that is also the root of where we get the English cardiac. Okay? But what that word is, is it's not talking about just emotions. It's not just talk, it's not talking about the fleshly heart there. The heart, the word that Jesus uses, again, is one of these words that's comprehensive. And it, it refers to the mind. It refers to the emotions. It refers to the will of man. In other words, it refers to the totality of who you are. The totality of who you are. That is the heart. Wow. And Jesus is calling for a radical purity, a cleanliness and an innocence, a singleness of devotion of the whole of who you are. Are you starting to feel the heaviness of this? I hope so. I hope that you are. What does this mean? <laughs> what, what is this heart? What is this call? That is this heart that he's talking about and this purity that he's talking about being coupled with that heart. I like what Martin Lloyd-Jones said about it. He said that the heart, it's a heart that is perfect like that of Jesus, end quote. Wow. That's pretty heavy. And that is the heart of the issue. And Jesus is getting to the heart of the issue. You see, religious people don't get to the heart of the issue. Matter of fact, this whole getting to the heart of the issue throughout Jesus' ministry was really beginning to rock the established religion of the day. Orthodox Judaism. It, it was it, because they, the, the mindset of that day as well as this day when you're dealing with religious folks is the only look at the external. They, they think, well, you know, if I just hold to some code of ethics, 
if I just apply some system of morality, if I don't cuss and don't drink and don't sleep around and I don't hang around those that do, well, surely I'm pure. You know, you just would make a good Pharisee. Although all those things ought to be what we might live for. That's, but that you might just be a good Pharisee because... Jesus said of the Pharisees, if you remember them, he talked about that in Matthew 25, excuse me, 23, verse 25, 28, when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Oh, you blind Pharisees, first you clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and the outside, may, that the outside may also be king. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for your light whitewashed tomb, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So also you outwardly, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness and uncleanliness. Dead men's bones. So this purity is bigger than a outside action, though outside action is connected to it. This purity is something that affects every bit of our lives. And the true, real Christian is experiencing this purity, whatever it is. I haven't really unpacked that for you yet. Whatever it is, and whoever is experiencing this purity, and only those who are experiencing this purity, only those will see God. So what in the world... How does the heart become pure? How does it become pure? Because reality is pre-conversion, pre-salvation. Your heart is bad. Bad. Michael Jackson had a song in the 90s. I'm bad. Do any of y'all know that song? Probably not. Maybe just me. I'm bad. <laughs> You're bad. <laughs> okay. You're bad. You're bad. Very, very bad. Post, I mean pre-conversion. You're bad. You are, to give you a theological label, totally depraved. Every inclination of your heart, though it may appear... This is, this, this is pre-conversion. Every inclination of your heart, though it may appear righteous and appear good and look good and be good by the world's standards, pre-conversion, it's stained with the filthiness of self-inflated, self-indulgence, self-reliance, self-idolatry, self-promotion, self-preservation, self-exaltation, and has nothing to do about the glory of God. Now, How in the world does the heart become pure in the way that Jesus is saying the heart must become pure because only the pure in heart will see God? How? It means that God 
has to perform a radically sovereign surgery on your heart. It means that God must perform a heart transplant. He's got to take out that corrupted because you can't you can't just put a band-aid over what you've got. You can't just take some medication and make that bad heart a little better because it's not going to work. God has to reach in with his sovereign hand and take out that heart. That is the essence of the new birth. That is the essence of what it means to be born again. Matter of fact, the Old Testament gives light to us on understanding what the new birth is, functionally speaking. Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 Verses 25 through 26, what, is the, what does the Scripture say there? Listen, oh, these words, write down the reference and you can go back and, and, and look at it, but it's beautiful. This is the Old Testament rendition of what it means to be born again, functionally. Okay? Um, Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. He says this, okay? And I quote him, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Do you, that, that's it. From a functional standpoint, this is what God is doing. This is the experience of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This, from a functional standpoint, is what is going on in the inner being when a person is born again. This is what is happening. Well, how does God do this? How does God make a dirty heart Clean, given us a new heart. How does He do this? Well, I can only answer you with what God has revealed to us in Scripture. And from a functional standpoint, there are two ways that God does this. There is an objective way that God does this, and then there is an experiential way that we personally experience in our lives what God has done objectively in the Spirit. Now you say, Pastor, my head is spinning, my eyes are rolling back with all of your words. Well, I'm going to break it down. I mean, if, if y'all would get it the first time, I wouldn't have to preach an hour and a half. <laughs> I'm kidding. All right. From an objective standpoint, there is an objective purity by grace. That is to say... By grace, through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, the Christian becomes pure even as he is pure. 
Remember I told you, only Christ has that radical purity that is being talked about. Only Christ. And so, God objectively declares us to be righteous as Christ is righteous. Another theological term that Paul would use for that, one that I often refer to, is justification. Having been made just as if you, and this is to simplify it, been made just as if you never sinned. It's the only way you're going to become clean and innocent, not by your innocence and cleanliness, but by an alien innocence and cleanliness. And by alien, I don't mean somebody from Mars. I'm talking about a righteousness outside of yourself. A purity outside of yourself. A purity that comes from God and not from within. And he applies that to you. Hallelujah. It is, it is, it is the, the objective declaration of this. Though your sins be as scarlet. You shall be white as snow. That is awesome. And God's people said, thank you, Lord, for that reality and that truth. Well, a lot of people would like to just stop there. Rejoice, rejoice in the objective. That's where it begins, this happiness that comes for the pure in heart that will see God. But you can't stop there. There are those that would that, that like to take a reality like that and like to say, hey, I've been declared righteous as Jesus is righteous. Therefore, nothing else about me matters in my life. Don't tell me what's right or wrong. Well, then you've fallen for what's known as Antonia and and. I can't speak this morning. You've fallen for what is known as taking the grace of God as, as a license for your, for your sin and your evil and your weakness. You've become antinomian, is the theological term. And that's wrong. You see, there is an experiential side. That is to say, the grace that God has worked in us the grace that He has worked in us, we now work out into our lives. Day by day by day by day by day. Moment by moment by moment by moment. That is the experiential side of the purity that we're called to have. Now, I like the way John puts it in 1 John. 1 John chapter number 3, verses 2 and 3. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now. I like that. Right now, not tomorrow, not next year, we are, beloved, God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. In other words, there's something that we are becoming that has not yet appeared yet. We're not there. But right now we are God's children, though what we will be has not yet appeared. 
But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. How is He? He is pure and pure and perfect in every way. Okay? We shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. Verse 3. Verse 3 is what I want you to hear. And everyone who thus hopes in Him, that's Jesus, purifies Himself as He is pure. That's interesting. Might even call it strange. The way that's worded. But we who have been truly born of God, who have been made pure even as Jesus is pure, we are about the business of purifying ourselves in our conduct. As I like to say it, what we already are because of our conversion, what we already are objectively, which is the perfect righteousness of Christ, what we already are, We're to be about the business of becoming in our practical daily life. And if you've truly been declared, there's got to be an inclination to try to work out in our lives who we are. We can't be declared that and walk away from it like it has no meaning in our lives. If we have been declared that and we have experienced that, then we struggle to become. Though what we shall be has not yet appeared, yet when He does appear, we shall be like Him. And in the meantime, we're working out what we will become. That's the process of purification. Also known as sanctification. Wow. Wow. That is a powerful reality. Now, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, verse 6, and verse 8 really become intimately linked because as we mourn over our sinfulness, and we hunger and thirst for more of His righteousness, the greater our experience and conduct of His purity will be. And so all of these work together, helping us to be whom God has declared us to be. Hallelujah. Who will see God? Only he who has a pure heart. Who has a pure heart? Only those who are purified through the blood of the Lamb and consequently purifying themselves even as he is pure. And who are those that are given the pure heart through the blood of Lamb and are purifying themselves right now? From the beginning, it is those who have repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. And only those. Now, how... I'm going to end with this question. How do the pure in heart see God? How do they? For we do not see Him as He is until He returns. We see through a glass dimly right now, Paul writes. 1 Corinthians 13. How is it? 
that we're seeing God. Because in this text, the pure in heart see God right now. This is present tense. Hmm. So how do we see God? I mean, Moses in Exodus 33 was told he couldn't see God. Do you remember that? Well, that was because Moses could not stare into the face of, of, the, of, of, of God's emanating holiness and survive. Okay? Finite hu- humanity cannot survive in the infinites of His holiness. Now, we're, we're New Covenant. It's a little different. We've come through the blood of the Lamb. That's the only way we can enter into His presence is through the blood of the Lamb. But how do we see God right now? Because you see Him. If you're pure in heart, and the way that I define purity of heart, you see Him. And the more you work out that purity in, in, in your life, the greater your sight of God will be. But how do we see Him? I'll offer you a few ways. Because I do not mean that God comes into your room every night and sits at your bed wearing a robe and you see God like that. That's not what I mean. How do we see God now? Well, I'll offer you three ways and then I'm going to close. We see God, first of all, in His Word. In His written Word. This is... Special revelation. We, we, though we can look out at the world and know there is a God, we call that natural revelation, we understand who that God is and the character of that God and the attributes of that God because they have been revealed in the 66 books of the Bible. We, have God, we see God in His Word. We see God. But we see God in a very special way in His Word. Because the Scripture teaches that pre-conversion we were blind. We could not see. We could not. Matter of fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about how we cannot see the gospel or the glory of Christ because the God of this world, little g, has blinded us to it. Because I can remember as a lost 12-year-old boy, Reading through the book of the Revelation. Now why do you think a lost 12 year old boy would want to read the book of the Revelation? Well because he was fascinated with the end times. And fascinated with Antichrist. And fascinated with what this would be and that would be. And fascinated with time scales and all kinds of things. And trying to figure out some secret deep. Fascinated with all that. Guys. We're going to study the book of Revelation coming up in the book of August. And if that's all you're interested in, you're off the mark. The book of the Revelation is about the revelation of the glory of Christ. Ultimately seen at His return. 
But it's not about being fascinated with all kinds of strange things that you could read in some fictional, and I say fictional, novel like Left Behind. Now, oh, I've done gone to meddling. Jesus help me. <laughs> now listen. I would read through that, but I did not see it. It was not until the Lord came into my life at 16 years of age and He made me alive that all of a sudden I saw Christ. Not I Christ walked up to me and said, How you doing, Scott? No, I saw Him in my spirit. And what I mean by that, I saw the glory of who He was. The only Savior, the only way. God come in human flesh. I go back and read the book of the Revelation. I read it totally differently. Or any passage of Scripture. But we see God in His Word. Well, we also see God's hand at work. We see God in the world around us. God is always doing stuff in your life, around you, in the world, around you. Even in the most seemingly insignificant experiences, even in your negative choices, God is still at work showing you something about Himself. Think about in Psalm 29, David saw God in a thunderstorm. Or I think about Job as he was referring to all the varied experiences of his life. Job said these words in Job 42 in verse 5. He said, my ears have heard you and now my eyes have seen you. The truth is the more we practically purify our heart daily, the more singly devoted our hearts become to him the less distracted we are by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we have a clearer vision of God. And the less we're working out that purity, the more blurry our vision is. But God is at work around us. But ultimately, ultimately, we will see God face to face. And we will see God in a way that's better than Moses. You hear me? We'll see Him face to face. Paul says we look through a glass dimly, but then face to face. Context of chapter 13 is the return of Christ. Context of 1 John chapter 3 that I read to you is when Christ returns, when He appears, when we see Him as He is. That's when it will be all complete. But we will see Him as He is. Oh, lovers of Jesus, that ought to make your heart leap. If you're truly Christian, you're a lover of Jesus and there's something special about Him. If you're not a true Christian, then you become all sour and can't understand why does He get so excited about the person and work of Jesus. Because He shed His blood for my sin. He saved my soul. He rescued me when I could not rescue myself. And I tell you, He's better than a church pew. 
better than a membership role or a baptismal pool. He's better than anything you will ever encounter or experience. His name is Jesus Christ. And He is God come in human flesh. And if your Jesus is anything less than that, you don't know Him. Now. How do we see God? We shall see Him face to face. That's powerful. That's ultimate. That's final salvation. Wow. Wow. Um, Our confession ought to sound like that of Job. And Job, Job, in the oldest book in the Bible, Job had it down pat. Job had it right in Job chapter 19, um, verses 25 through 27, when he said this. He said, I, and listen, and Job's saying this, sitting on the ash heap of wreck and ruin. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes and not another. Whoo! Hallelujah. Okay, I'm going to try not to do a little Pentecostal dance in a minute. But I'm just telling you, that's powerful stuff. That's wow. That's wow. 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 I would conclude by speaking to sinners and struggling saints simply saying lost sinner you're condemned you're unclean I don't care how religious you are I don't care how many churches in Tuscumbia you belong to or have belonged to if you want to be pure in heart and see God, then it begins by you admitting to God the sinful condition of your heart and the fact that you're helpless to do anything about it. I think sometimes that's the hardest thing for a sinner to, to admit. They're helpless. All the world's trying to figure out how they can do a few good things to try and get their way in and climb a Jacob-like ladder into the presence of God only to find out when they get to the top rung at death they will fall into the abyss of fire. But if you will but admit your sin and your condition and your helplessness and you will call on Jesus Christ... And ask Him to clean your character and purify your heart. The Holy Spirit will come and you will become the habitation of the Holy Spirit of God. You will become a new creation, a new creature. And then you will be declared perfect as He is perfect. A seed of perfection is deposited within you and you will get the joy of spending the rest of your life living out in conformity to the perfection of God. Wow. Wow. Blessed are the pure in heart, the clean, the innocent, the undivided heart, for they alone will see God. And then I would say to the struggling saint, 
I want to encourage you. I want to encourage your heart as you purify yourself in practice. Guys, we see God through a glass dimly for now. Our imperfect vision results in less than perfect purity at times. But take heart. Take heart. Be of good cheer. The time is coming when we will behold Him face to face. And the things that have tripped you up, the sins that so easily entangle your feet, that sin that you hate, it will be vanquished and no more. Hallelujah. Wow. I'm going to ask everyone to stand. Every head to be bowed and every eye closed.